You are listening to The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope, a podcast on science, the environment, and the Christian faith. This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome to another episode of The Natural Philosopher. We're Dr. Mick Pope. In this episode, I want us to think a bit about what we might say that's uniquely Christian in the age of the Anthropocene and how that might help us develop an ethic for it. I like to spend time on academia.edu. I know there's a number of reasons to criticize that, uh, but I find it very useful for research and general interest. And every so often I troll for calls for papers. And so a few years ago, I think it's about three years ago now or four years ago, I found a call for papers by a lovely academic, uh, Melissa Broughton, Associate Professor of English Literature at La Sierra University, ended up writing two chapters, one of which appeared in a volume, Ecotheology and Non-Human Ethics in Society, and the chapter's entitled The Self-Emptying Godhead, Perichoresis, Kenosis, and an Ethic for the Anthropocene. So there's some big theological words there, which I'm going to unpack. And so this episode is The Self-Emptying Godhead, an Ethic for the Anthropocene. So let's dig into it. And there'll be some ideas that you may have heard before from me. So in in 1990, Catholic theologian Hans Kuhn called for a world ethic uh, together with peace and dialogue among the religions. Such an ethic, he states, is needed to address environmental and social issues such as war and famine. And at the time, he wasn't aware, as I think people are now, of the concept of the Anthropocene, but he could identify climate change and pollution and all these sorts of things. I like Hans Kung. Um, He's the sort of theologian I think every denomination or every Christian tradition should have, because he was censured by the papacy for writing a book, I think at least once, but for writing a book, questioning the infallibility of the Pope. Now, I'm not particularly having a go at the, the Pope, but simply to say that I think theologians should speak back to their own tradition. Anyway, be that as it may, uh, Kung wasn't trying to develop an idealistic concept of religion or extract the key essence of faith, but, and I think this is important, he, he wanted to firstly unite religions around important issues, and I've talked about this, I think, last week when talking about Christian humanism, but also I think to understand that religions need to remain credible. So another one of the things I think I spoke about when talking about Christian humanism is the failed brand or the tarnished brand of evangelicalism. And Christians can either, I think, assume that we still command a voice in the public square and demand that, or get very defensive instead. Um, so it, it's either assume this, this authority that maybe you don't have anymore, or go and hide um, in a corner somewhere. But instead, surely we should be thinking deeply and richly about our traditions and what they might bring to the table in terms of the current issues that we face. 
Now, Kung identified the West as facing as being faced with a vacuum of meaning, values, and norms, which presents various challenges to the political situation. And again, we see that where a more fundamentalist style of Christianity, or in other nations, it's of different religions, unites with politics and the damage that that can do. But at the same time, of course, uh, it's five years since uh, Pope Francis released his encyclical Laudato Si, and notwithstanding the issues that the, the Catholic Church has from time to time, the fact that Francis's encyclical commanded a general interest um, from Catholic and non-Catholic alike, religious and non-religious alike. So Kuhn wants to develop an ethic that's other-focused on neighbour, on the world around us, and on future generations. And that's a real key thing that you'll hear in... Uh, Aboriginal um, culture, for example, and, and other Indigenous cultures who are really on about being good ancestors, whereas I think in the West we don't really think about that. And when you've got Christian traditions that are obsessed with eschatology, the end times, destruction, etc., they don't place any value on the future of the world and, and in, therefore directly or indirectly don't place a value on future generations. And so this is the kind of thing that we need to do. Kung's convinced that... Um, that science can't do that. He quotes a biologist, Hubert Markle, who, who says that science cannot teach us such norms, uh, end quote, as we require for global ethic, uh, and there's no quasi-innate categorical imperative to appeal to. So I want to focus on two things. Firstly, there's the concept of the triune nature of God, which is uniquely Christian, and it's not the obsession, as useful as it is, or has been, and may still be, on the the ontological nature of God, the being of God, and, and how that will distinguish us from polytheistic faiths, with all due respect. But the inner dynamic or relationship, I think, is significant. And the other thing is this idea of kenosis, which is just a, a Greek word used in Philippians chapter 2, which describes Christ's self-emptying. So, if you turn to secular global ethical models, the person I find fascinating and I've talked about before is Stuart Kaufman. And the reason I, I do that is that he understands that reductionism is a blind alley. It's a dead end. It, the problem with reductionism is that everything at one level reduces to a level below. So God, I guess, you know, putting it in Richard Dawkins terms as a spandrel or a meme, Religion is just something that a self-conscious ape invents to deal with the problems of our consciousness and our mortality and so on. Our consciousness is an illusion, and that's a, an issue of, of neuroscience, which in turn ultimately goes all the way down to th particle physics, and we're just atoms in motion. And so one might as well result either or move to nihilism or some kind of Nietzschean ubermensch, just the will to power. So Kaufman correctly identifies then when you apply that to ethics that there is no ought from is. That is to say that descriptions about the physical nature of reality around us are just is statements. This is a fact. This is such. And, you know, there was a Big Bang so many billions of years ago and that expanded and it's still expanding now and stars condense and planets form and life spontaneously appears around those and it's just all atoms in motion. So unless somehow emerging from that in a physicalist type sense are genuinely new things that are not either epistemologically 
are redu reducible, that is in terms of what we know or ontologically, that is the things that appear at the high level are genuinely new things. So consciousness is genuinely new and not simply reducible to brain states. Ethics is something that emerges that has some value. Then um, physicalism, it, materialism is stuffed and so are we along with it. Um, so let's take, for just to give you an example, he, he believes that agency, meaning and purpose are, are emergent parts of the biosphere via evolution. So if you think about, about a bacteria swimming about in a glucose gradient, that is sugar, so that, that's its food, by altering its behavior to swim up the gradient towards where there's a high concentration of this food, food the sugar, the bacterium is exhibiting purpose, obtain more food, agency, changing course to swim to more food, and a concept of meaning, that is, the glucose gradient means more food. And so Kaufman would say that these things are fairly fundamental and kind of, um, uh, what's the, the word, the, the basement level ideas, if you like. And then the more complex the organism, the more complex the agency and purpose. But these just emerge in a manner that's non-reductive, non-reducible to the lower level of description. Now, Nancy Murphy and George Ellis developed this, this uh, idea at length, suggesting that theology is an emergent discipline at the top of the hierarchy. And that's a bit cheeky, isn't it? Um, because, of course, above all else, you, you place God. Now, Kaufman, of course, maintains a physicalist emergent model, which is what I'm saying. It's non-dualist. In other words, there's no spiritual reality. Uh, dualism is not always a dirty word, I should say, by the way, because, of course, to be a Christian is to believe in a spiritual reality because God is spirit. I'm not talking about nature of the soul or anything like that at that point. So Kaufman maintains a physicalist emergent model, and he adopts Christian and teleological or purposeful language um, without suggesting that it's a transcendent being. So there's no basis for any ethic that you might get from this kind of idea that things simply emerge on their own. Now, Kaufman rejects a model of divine action that is special and episodic. So that's fine. That's not a model of divine action I believe in either. Um, although you have to be very nuanced, obviously, in, in this area. So Psalm 104 or Acts 17, Paul's speech to the Areopagus, talk about uh, an ongoing providential care of God. God is constantly involved in some way, shape or form. Now, I know there's all sorts of tensions to hold there in terms of why you know, bad things happen to good people, uh, the problem of evil. Nonetheless, the Bible doesn't have an upstairs-downstairs view, as Tom Wright talks about, but there's this idea that um, what you might call, and this is where the Trinity is so useful, both the imminent and transcendent nature of God. Transcendent meaning God is wholly other, but imminent mean that God suffuses or infuses the universe with divine presence. Um, and I also think, you know, it's, it's arbitrary that Kaufman says, oh yeah, a bacteria can have agency, but God can't. <laughs> Uh, which he denies a priori. So in other words, he wants to say that causation, the way in th which things occur, is purely bottom-up. Uh, but we know that uh, causation can happen top-down as well. And of course, God um, God is one who could do both, potentially. Now, I've talked about in the past Simon Conway Morris, who talks about evolution as convergent, uh, which is to say that the similar environments will produce similar features in different creatures in different environments. So placental and uh, marsupial cats, for example, have these teeth designed for predation. And so why can't there be a top-down causation in terms of the emergence of mind? So that's uh, T.E. Oakes's idea of, um, oh, crikey, and I forgot the phrase now, 
the mental air, the mental air. So just as the air shapes the um, aerodynamics of birds and uh, flying insects and bats and so on, so this mental air, the presence of God, produces a convergent evolution which results in the evolution of intelligence in multiple different uh, brain setups. So bird brains, that's not an insult, like corvids, crows, etc., African grey parrots, very intelligent birds, uh, cephalopods, so octopus, octopi rather, uh, and of course apes, including ourselves. And so out of that, of course, can come ethics as well. So I think it's important to be able to ground this in science and say, yes, we agree. Uh, we think that ethics is an emergent part of the evolutionary process. Just don't think that it's a purely materialistic process. There's the presence of divine mind. And I'll talk about this sort of thing again in, in other programs. Now, because the Trinity is, is more or less unique to Christianity, it should lie at the center of Christian theology. Clark Pinnock states that the Trinity is, quote, an insight arising from the narrative of salvation, which is God's self-revelation. Uh, Keith Ward likewise notes that, quote, the idea of the Trinity does not supersede Old Testament monotheism. It interprets it in the light of a specific set of revelatory events and experiences. In other words, the New Testament writers were forced to come up with this idea of the Trinity by what they saw. See, for example, Paul in 1 Corinthians 8.6, in which he fits Jesus into, the Jew into Jewish monotheism by inserting him into the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And he, he puts Jesus into that. Um, it's also, and this is an interesting thing among systematic theologians, the difference between two ideas of the Trinity. So the economic trinity has nothing to do with money, but refers to the revealed nature of the Godhead made known in Scripture, particularly in the Incarnation. Uh, another idea of the trinity, according to T.F. Torrance, is the immanent or theological trinity, which focuses on God's ontological nature, the inner being or life of the trinity. Now this, of course, is logically prior to the economic trinity because God was God and triune God before the creation of the universe. But John Webster, who's a systematic theologian, he wants to give that primacy and thinks that it's dangerous to start from the economic trinity and, and move forward. That, of course, is a nonsense. <laughs> Why is it a nonsense? Because we have zero access to the, um, the imminent or theological trinity. The only way in which we know anything about the nature of God is revelation, uh, and that's uh, God revealing God's self in history as a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And therefore, it's precisely there where we start. Now, here's the key. Here's the key. Now, you may be familiar with the whole debates about homoousis and the Father, Son, and Spirit being of the exact same nature. And I think I said earlier, that's great when you want to defend Christianity against polytheism. But the thing that we see is ultimately the, the phrase that you see in the Johannine epistles and gospel that God is love. And the reason God can be love rather than God is loving God is love, is that God is relationship, God is loving relationship, and that's an internal relationship to the, the three persons of the Trinity. Now that, of course, is not exclusive of all that discussion about the nature of God. They share the same nature, but they are three different persons. And yes, that's hard to get your head around, and, and yes, that presents all sorts of problems. Think about light as wave and particle. Or think about the joke, how many Christians does it take to change a light bulb? Three, but they're really one. The point is, is that you have to hold that intention, but it's only useful insofar as you then move on and say, well, 
what does that mean? And it means that you have God being relationship within God's self, God being love. And the only way that's possible um, is if there's this dynamic relationship. And so there's this uh, phrase that goes back to John of Damascus as perichoresis, which um, he describes as, quote, mutual inner penetration of divine and human nature in Jesus, the God human being, and for the reciprocal indwelling of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it's it's such an intimate level of relationship, this interpenetration, which naturally enough demands that the three persons of the Trinity be spiritual for that to be uh, possible. Uh, and I'm going to stop there, and you might want to pause and uh, let the brain decompress for a bit before we go back to this and look at how this then might end up being uh, developed as a an ethic for the Anthropocene. Well, welcome back. Uh, we were trying to get our heads around the nature of the Trinity, which is always going to be uh, an interesting issue. And why? Because I want to focus on this idea of perichoresis, which is the idea of a, a mutually interpenetrating relationship within the divine Godhead, so that we can understand better what it means that God is love. One of the the issues then is that you get sometimes in um, classical theism is the you know God is impassable and God is self-sufficient and has no need to create, and you end up with, I think the act of creation being something of a mystery. And and the reason, of course, we want to focus on why would God create, is that we're looking at an ethic for the Anthropocene, which is well, how do you human beings relate to the rest of creation? So, creation, I think, in thinking about perichoresis, is that creation is contingent. And God does not need to be um, creator. Uh, his eternal purpose of love was ultimately to freely create a universe where he has made us as his creation in his image and likeness to share in divine fellowship. So the fundamental nature of reality is relationship and creation is a free expression of that kind of relationship uh, of love. So creation is a loving action, notwithstanding the evil that we see the mystery that that is, to extend that divine love to all things. The historical economic love of Trinity directs us back to ontological love within the Trinity apart from God's relationship to the world. So God is relationship prior to the creation, creates that love to extend uh, that love, that circle of love to all of reality. And you can see, of course, if you, you look through Scripture, how the three people, uh, persons of the Trinity are involved in creation. And God creates the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1.1. It's the Spirit of God who hovers over the waters. It's that same Spirit who groans with us and ultimately with creation in Romans 8 um, and hovers over creation like a mother hand over its chicks. John 1, of course, talks about creation um, being... You know, through and for for Christ, the, the Logos, as you get also in, in Colossians 1 and Ephesians 1. Now, there's this interesting thing, and this is a case of me writing something a few years ago and wanting to nuance it a bit more, but 
the whole thing about Genesis 1, and I'll, I'll depart from what I've written here a little bit, is that the relationship between the creation account and the contemporary creation accounts, of course, is the defeat of the forces of chaos in the Enuma Elish, which is the Babylonian creation myth. And always at the end of one of those battles is a temple created. So we're meant to understand that creation is a temple in which God can dwell, and the, the way in which God dwells is through the image of God, which is human beings. Now that elevates human beings in a functional sense above other creatures, um, and you see that in Genesis 2 and 15, we're meant to, um, to serve and to keep the soil. But uh, in in this original chapter, I've le- leapt too quickly, I think, to the whole of the idea of creation. Because if you can see the narrative of the priestly account, God doesn't come home, as it were, until the tabernacle is completed. But if you look at the language of completion of the tabernacle and the completion of creation, you'll see a, a bunch of common phrases in the Hebrew. So it's a protological account which means to say that creation is like a type of temple, but that focuses down on the tabernacle. And then by the time you get to the Jerusalem temple, you see all these elements of it that mirror uh, the creation, the bath, which is the sea and the pillars, which are meant to be the pillars of the earth that keep up the sky and all those sorts of things. Then, of course, you get to the book of Revelation and there's no temple because God dwells everywhere. And that's a look back to the garden and and the first creation account. So there's that arc of creation to new creation. Creation is tended as temple, um, which I guess is disrupted by violence on the earth and um, what's traditionally called the fall, uh, Adam and Eve being ejected from the garden, all those things. And then that's picked up in the the tabernacle. But it, it speaks to the fact that the goal and the purpose of creation is to be something that humans mirror God to, uh, and God indwells, at the very least, through us. And, and so there's a genuine sense, I think, in which creation is is meant to be viewed as sacred. And I, I know there's a lot in the um, book of Leviticus about creating sacred space from the kind of more mundane space, but that's only because humanity stuffed things up, right? So ultimately, we're meant to elevate the value of of creation we're not seeing it as divine and that's the whole point or one of the points of, of genesis 1 rather is that demythologizing the sun moon and stars or the, the night lights are not divine bodies but they're the creations of god likewise the the sea serpents and all those elements and yet they reflect god in a, in a particular way so while human beings are the image of god um the creation itself um, also mirrors God in a, in a profound way. Now, if we think about the differences between um, hu- uh, humans and non-humans on the one hand and the divine trinity on the other, and the relationship between the two, the world was created in distinction from the Father and the three members of the trinity so as to be able to relate and freely respond to God. The perichoretic trinity seems to point to this because God is free and constitutes a genuinely responsive relationship within God's self. This, uh, the creation was not necessary, but God's perichoretic nature suggests the possibility of creating a world with which God can freely relate. Furthermore, the world is ontologically distinct from God and not an emanation. So the problem with, of course, in emanationism is that evil then goes to the heart of God. 
um, there's a degree of separation at least when it's a, a separate creation. In this way, God can freely enter in and take delight in a world capable of echoing God's interpersonal relationships. As Clark Pinnock notes, quote, God is delighted by the way that nature can mirror the divine and exhibit its traces, end quote, which includes spontaneity and openness among creatures, reciprocal relationships, and more. We must reject, however, any identification between God and creation, as it is nowhere suggested in the scriptures that the two are homoousal, and I've just already pointed to the nature of evil. Now, Jürgen Moltmann wants to take perichoresis a step further and speaks not uh, just of persons, but of divine spaces for the other two divine persons in claiming that, uh, quote, they also mutually see the other's life and movement and make themselves inhabitable for one another. So there's a sense in which there's a giving way uh, within the, the Trinity. Now, this is important uh, because we need to jump forward then for time and look at the whole idea of kenosis. So just really briefly, you'd be familiar, or, you, or maybe not familiar, but Je uh, Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, Philippians, in chapter 2, there's this wonderful hymn. Now, Paul may have wrote it, or he may have used uh, a pre-existing hymn that uses this word kenosis. And, and it's Christ emptied himself. And there's lots of debates about what that means, but it seems most clearly to me that it's both a matter of becoming human, but also the ethical behavior or, or res response that flowed from that, which was taking the form of a slave, that is a human form, but also in society, because what happened to Jesus, he was crucified. And it wasn't Roman citizens, it wasn't people of nobility who were crucified, it was... Um, uh, you know, uh, bandits, the, the kind of revolutionary type, those who resisted Roman rule, and slaves, runaway slaves. So Jesus really does identify with the bottom nature of Roman society by way of becoming human in the first place. So that is obviously a, a fundamental kind of Christian ethic. You know, Jesus says, take up your cross daily and follow me. Live, live as though you were dead to the world and it's its obsession with power and prestige and influence and so on, and take up a path that gives way, gives in sometimes even, you might say, and is willing to be a slave. So people like John Polkinghorne, who's a, a former physicist as well as being an Anglican minister and a theologian, talks about creation as kenosis. And so you can see how that links into what I was saying before about the perichoretic trinity, where the members of the trinity love each other and they make way for each other. And in creating out of love, God makes way within God's self, as it were. In a, in, um, and you have to be careful here again, but maybe I'm, I'm not so shy about panentheism anymore because it's not pantheism. It's not identifying creation with God, as I've gone at lengths to say before, but saying that God actually makes room because if God's the only thing, and then there's a universe, uh, then God has done something to accommodate God's self to the existence of the other. And so Polkinghorne talks about creation as kenosis. He talks about um, kenosis of omnipotence, which means that God exercises general providence while leaving the other room to be. I know that's a profoundly non-Calvinist statement, but you'd probably know by now that I'm not a Calvinist. And so that means there are some things that occur which are not God's prescriptive will. Um, as Stephen Ed Evans has commented, our views of omnipotence 
have been too shaped by our theology. What if omnipotence is precisely the idea that God can create creatures that are genuinely independent of him? Then you've got kenosis of simple eternity, which suggests that God adds a temporal pole at creation. Uh, what does that mean? Well, you know, God is eternal, but in order to relate to a temporal time-bound being, God adds a temporal pole. That is, God relates to the creature bound in time in a time, timely manner. Creation of omniscience means that the future is emergent and not yet. Uh, Polkinghorn importantly stresses that while the future is not exhaustively known even to God, God is not unprepared for the future. And here's where you rescue, I think, this view from this idea of process thought, where God is really bound uh, and can't achieve much. And Polkinghorn also talks about uh, kenosis of causal status. In the Incarnation, the Son became a cause among other causes, although we might argue post-baptism, the Son, with the blessing of the Father and the power of the Spirit, was more than just a supersized human in terms of his causal powers. Um, to quote, and I think this is Polkinghorn, God allows creatures their part in bringing about the future, and so there must be, quote, an interweaving of providential and creaturely causalities. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? an interweaving of providential and creaturely causalities, which is precisely to say that God brings about the best future for the creation, and yet creatures play their own role, whether that's human obedience or non-human creatures doing what non-human creatures are meant to do. So in this kind of brief overview, I think what hopefully I've said is that the key to the divine nature is that God is love. And that can only be really the case rather than God is just loving if God is a relationship within God's self, and that's the Trinity. And more than that, we can look back at the creation and the nature of God through the lens of Jesus to see that that Trinitarian or triune relationship must be canotic or self-emptying amongst those three members of the Godhead, in obviously in a different way, because there's no fall within the Trinity, but there's a break in relationships between human beings and God that Christ on the cross repairs, reconciles. So you see uh, altruism, this idea of uh, creatures in the natural world exhibiting an example of what kenosis might be like. But of course, if you're not self-aware, and particularly I think if you're not God-aware, it's not kenosis in the classical sense. Nonetheless, it's the necessary evolutionary precursor in altruism, this this um, uh, giving up of things. And so I think, um, you know, as, as George Ellis says, kenosis is, quote, a joyous, kind, and loving attitude that is willing to give up selfish desires and to make sacrifices on behalf of others for the common good and the glory of God, doing this in a generous and creative way, avoiding the pitfalls of pride, and guided and inspired by the love of God and the gift of grace. End quote. And this, of course, includes, um, as John uh, Ralston, uh, sorry, um, yeah, it's John Ralston, I think, um, who says that we, we must limit our inherited, that is via evolutionary, um, desire for self-actualization so that it does not become self-aggrandizement on a colossal scale. In other words, we strive for uh, survival and self-actualization as, as aware beings, and that can become self-aggrandization through 
and technology. Think of the Tower of Babel or geoengineering or all these sorts of other things. And, and return to the idea of service in the cosmic temple that Genesis 1 gives us, or the, the garden story in Genesis 2, of serving and keeping the soil. So, to come full circle then, we need to extend, in a canonic sense, our understanding of relationship. Uh, the relationship we have with each other, the relationship we have to the divine trinity, and embrace the non-human, and those outside our own kin whether it's our own family, our own neighbourhood, our own nation. And so the fundamental idea then uh, of a, a Christian anthrop- Anthropocene ethic is relational and sacrificial. So the very nature of God and this canonic idea, and this can be um, expressed in a number of different ways. Uh, for example, to get back to evolution, the desire to have a large family. And those, I know population is, is a debated idea in this whole thing, but large families in the West is something that we should move away from because of the energy intensity of our families uh, in a non-coercive and sensible manner. Um, we need to become less consumptive, so give up our consumptive desires. I, I did preach a, a servant series once on the seven deadly sins, and I talked about gluttony in terms of food and energy and all these sorts of other things. And thirdly, um, maybe dietary choices might be one. I mean, I know there are lots of Christian vegans and vegetarians who would go on about that. Um, also, fourthly, human habitation needs to be designed with nature in mind. You build a city, you build a house, uh, a suburb, whatever, and you take over land where non-human creatures once lived. Perhaps we need to start designing our dwellings to have less of an impact on those things around by either sprawling less or designing with creatures in mind more and maybe not getting so upset and having better solutions if we find a snake in our backyard or in North America it's a bear or something. Well, they were there first. Um, And finally, of course, giving up our, our energy gluttony and fossil fuels and using technology in a a canonic and self-emptying way rather than a self-aggrandizing way. So I I pointed to things like some of the the more harebrained geoengineering projects. Anyway, there's a fair few theological concepts in in the past half hour or so, but if you focus down on the fact that what are the two almost other things that are more central to Christianity than this, the threefold triune nature of God, who expresses love within God's self and the self-emptying nature of God who expresses that outwards to humanity and indeed I think the whole of creation. Some heady topics, but things that are buried in in Greek words um, but have incredibly practical outcomes, I hope. Uh, You'll you'll agree. So um, once more, thanks for listening and God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.